I want us to point out three things from this text. First, I think we see a divine imperative. The text tells us, I want you to notice in verse 21, that the text begins with these three words in my version. It says, from that time. And what we find here is there's a, a distinct change in Jesus' ministry and his message, beginning here with verse 21 of Matthew 16. The, the change in his uh, ministry is that he goes from a very public ministry to a more private ministry. Instead of dealing with the crowds, dealing with the twelve. And the difference in his message is that now he is much more specific about what it will involve for him to carry out his Father's will and to accomplish the salvation of his people. Hold your finger in Matthew chapter 16 and turn back with me to Matthew chapter 4 for just a moment. These little interesting parallels, I think, help us to, to get the, the flow of, of Scripture. We look at Matthew 4 and verse 17. Verse 17 begins with the verse, same words as Matthew 16, 21, from that time. And, and both those verses mark a distinct change in Jesus' ministry. Matthew 4, 17 is the beginning of a very, very public ministry to a broad group of people which goes through the first next several chapters through chapter 15. When you come to chapter 16, verse 21, it says, Now from that time, Jesus begins to focus more on his disciples as he prepares for his journey to the cross. Remember I said last week, and this is helpful to keep in mind, is that the vast majority of the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus deal with the last six months of his life. And so here we are in Matthew chapter 16. He's just over halfway through the book. And we're already dealing with the last six months of Jesus' life as he approaches uh, his uh, journey to the cross. Uh, And what he began to explain to them here in our text is what I'm calling the divine imperative or the fact that to carry out his father's will and and his father's purpose and incarnation would require Jesus to suffer and to die. Here really is the most detailed explanation Jesus has given so far about what was in store for him to carry out his role as the Messiah. He says, verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples And when he began to show his disciples that he must suffer and he must die. And he points out several things in verse 21 about his suffering. For one, he he tells us where that suffering is going to take place. And he says it's going to take place in Jerusalem. I must go to Jerusalem, he says. Now that might not seem very significant on the surface. But in reality, it's very significant. You see, Jerusalem was the center of the Jewish religion. Jerusalem was where the temple was. Jerusalem was where the Jewish religious leaders were, the the scribes and the Pharisees. Jerusalem was where the, the festivals and the feasts of the Jews were held. But when Jesus says, I must go to Jerusalem, he doesn't say he must go there to participate in any of those kinds of activities or or to visit the the scribes and the Pharisees. But rather, 
He was in Jerusalem where he would pay the final price for the sins of his people. Jesus knew exactly what was waiting for him in Jerusalem. And he says it here with a real sense of purpose. I must go to Jerusalem. I want you to look with me at, again, to keep your finger in Matthew 16, look over to, to Luke 9. Verse 51 says this When the days were approaching for his ascension, he, that is Jesus, was determined to go to Jerusalem. The little Greek says there says he, he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. It's like he, he, he put blinders on and was not going to let anything detract him or keep him from making his way to Jerusalem. And from Luke 9.51 on, it's as though Jesus is on kind of a death march, knowing that he's going to Jerusalem and knowing exactly what is going to happen to him when he gets there. If you look with me again at Luke 19, let's flip over to Luke 19 quickly. It's just kind of an interesting pattern that you find in the Gospels. Verse 28, Luke 19.28. It says, after he said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, still on his way uh, to Jerusalem, knowing that when he arrived there, he would uh, be crucified. And so there is some purpose here when Jesus says to uh, his disciples that he must go to, must go to Jerusalem. Uh, for another, Jesus uh, told the disciples, the people who would cause him to suffer. Not, not, not just the place, but the people. His suffering would come, he tells them, from the religious leaders. The ones he mentions here in verse 21 are the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. Those three groups made up what was known as the Sanhedrin, or the uh, Jewish uh, ruling uh, council. And that council was headquartered, of course, in Jerusalem. And it's interesting, the ones who should have welcomed Jesus the most were the ones who rejected him. Those who should have been able to see most clearly how prophecy was unfolding in the life of Jesus were the ones who were the most blinded to it. And because they saw Jesus as a threat to the religious establishment, they turned on him. And they placed enormous suffering on him. For still another, Jesus tells the nature of his suffering. He tells the, the place, the people, and the nature of it. He simply says in verse 21 that he would be killed. Doesn't say how he'll be killed. Just says that he would be killed. Stated as a matter of fact. Don't go to Jerusalem. Suffer at the hands of the Sanhedrin. And be killed. But then... Still, he, he also gives the happy result of his experience in Jerusalem. Because even though he would be killed, he goes on to say, end of verse 21, they would be raised up on the third day. The cross would not be the end. The grave could not hold him, but he would be raised up in victory, he says, after three days. And, and all of that that Jesus described here in verse 21 
is what I'm calling the divine imperative. What Jesus had to do to carry out his father's will. Go to Jerusalem. Suffer at the hands of the chief priests, priests, scribes, and elders. Be killed. And yes, be raised on the third day. Well, second, we see in, a, in this text the, the human misunderstanding. Now, I'm sure that by the time Jesus got to the good news of the resurrection, the disciples were so troubled by the bad news of his suffering and death that they didn't hear it, and they missed it. They were stunned and shocked by this divine imperative that Jesus just described for them. None of of what Jesus said here fit in with their expectations of who the Messiah would be or what the Messiah would do. And it was Peter, believe it or not, it was Peter who reacted to what Jesus said. And here is where we see in verse 22, Peter going from his best to his worst. He goes from showing such great understanding in declaring that Jesus was Christ, the Son of the living God, to showing such great misunderstanding by not grasping anything of what Jesus said in verse 21. Look at what Peter did. text tells us he took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. He took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Just think of the audacity and the presumption of Peter. It is as though Peter took Jesus by the arm and took him aside and then began to challenge him and rebuke him about what he had just said. Now, maybe Peter since he was the self-appointed spokesman for the twelve, thought this was a statement he just couldn't let pass. Maybe Peter had a sense of presumption that after he'd just been praised and blessed so much for making this great declaration of the nature of Christ, that he had the spiritual insight to challenge Jesus. Maybe it was just his impetuous personality to let him do it. But for whatever reason, notice what he did. He took Jesus aside and he rebuked him. But now look at what Peter said. He told Jesus, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Now, the literal translation there is something like this. May God in his mercy spare you this. Some translations render it, far be it from you, Lord. Other translations say, perish the thought, Lord. But in the context, what Peter is saying here in the strongest terms is this is something that would never, ever happen to Jesus. The idea of a Messiah who would suffer and die was so foreign to these men. And again, this is one of those times where you kind of got got to put yourself in, in Peter's shoes a little bit. Their expectations of the Messiah were so contrary to what Jesus was describing here that they just couldn't grasp it. Peter couldn't understand it. 
You know, I talked last week about the expectations the Jews had for the Messiah and how they expected him to come and as a as a conquering king and set them free from Rome and establish his, his dominion on the earth. And, and Jesus just didn't fit those expectations. And so Peter rebuked Jesus. And he did it saying this, this shall never happen to you. Do you realize what Peter just said to Jesus? Do you understand what he just said to the Son of God? At best, he told Jesus he was mistaken. At worst, he called Jesus a liar. Jesus said, this is what's going to happen. And Peter said, oh, no, it's not. Peter assumed to know the plan of God better than the Son of God. Do you see how quickly Peter stumbled from saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, to not even taking the Son of God at his word and believing what he said. Peter thought he had it right and Jesus had it wrong. And he told him so. Here we see Peter at his worst. And then third, we see the essential principle. You see, Jesus would have none of Peter's rebuke because he saw through what Peter said to its very source because in the words of Peter, Jesus heard the voice of Satan. Satan knew the cross was his ultimate demise. Satan knew that if Jesus ever died on the cross, that he would be defeated. And so Satan did everything he could to keep Jesus from going there and doing that. That's the whole purpose of the of the temptations that Satan put on Jesus in the wilderness. Remember what uh, Satan said to, to Jesus in one of the temptations? He said, he took him to a high mountain. He said, if you will just bow down and worship me, I will give you all the glories of earth. You can have it. He's basically saying, Jesus, you don't have to, to go to the cross and endure all that. If you just worship me, you can have it. There's a shortcut. And it's interesting, at the end of those temptations, Jesus said a similar thing to what he says to Peter. He says, he says go, Satan. Here he says to Peter, get behind. Get behind me, Satan. You see, Jesus knew that Satan was using Peter to try to keep him from doing his father's will and what his father sent him to do. He went on to tell him in the verse, uh, or in the middle of verse 23, you are a stumbling block to me. We've just seen that Jesus is on a march to Jerusalem 
He's on a death march to the cross. And Jesus says to Peter, you are causing me to stumble on my way to do what my Father has sent me to do. You are a stumbling block to me. Get behind me, Satan. But I want you to understand something. In Jesus' human nature, the temptation was a real temptation. Jesus knew what the cross was going to entail. Jesus knew the suffering and the agony that was before him. That's why on the night before he was crucified, when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he he sweat so profusely, he bled. And his prayer was one of agony. And his prayer was one of escape. Father, if there's any other way to do this, Let this cup pass from me. But then he prayed, but not my will, but yours be done. Don't think not going to the cross wasn't a temptation to Jesus. And so Peter comes in and says, look, Lord, you don't have to do this. This is not going to happen. And Jesus turns to him and says, you get behind me. And then Jesus goes on to to give a a life principle. It's an essential principle, I'm calling it. And it is, into verse 23, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Look, Peter, you've taken your eyes off the right thing, put your eyes on the wrong thing. Peter lost his perspective. Again, I, I told the Presbytery last week, I, I keep telling you over and over again, in my simple way of trying to describe things, there are two basic perspe- perspectives of life. There's the vertical perspective and the horizontal perspective. We, we keep our eyes fixed upon God, and then we deal with things on the human level too. And if we lose this perspective, we lose all sense of this perspective. Peter lost his perspective. That's what Jesus is telling him. You have set your mind on, not on God's interests, but on man's. That is, he didn't see things from God's point of view. Peter is a classic example of losing perspective. And so, because he lost perspective, he challenged Jesus. And he said, that plan won't work. That's not the way it's to be done. It can't happen that way. You see, in his own mind, from the horizontal perspective, the cross would be a means of defeat, not a victory. It would prove that Jesus was not the Messiah, not that he actually was the Messiah. And so for Jesus to say that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer and be killed, was anathema to Peter. He couldn't get his mind around God's plan. And because he wasn't willing to submit to God's perspective and God's plan, he literally became an ally of Satan. That's a scary thing. Because it's, it's easy for us to do the same thing. There are so many parts to God's plan for our lives that we just don't understand. 
there, there are times, aren't there times in your life where in the midst of the circumstances, you just don't see how this could turn out for good at all. And so we question God's plan. We, we grumble against God's providence. We resist his will for our lives. And when we do that, what happens? We lose our joy and we have no peace. You know, we all tend to question God's providence, don't we? God's plan, God's will. That's what Peter's doing here. He hears God's plan and he says, I don't think that's a good plan. I don't see any good in that. God may have promised all things work together for good, but that can't be any good And Jesus is going to the cross. But don't we do the same thing? Don't we all struggle at times with God's providence? Full transparency. I'm struggling with God's providence right now. You know, it's hard for me to see the good in five active families relocating in six months. A little pastoral honesty there. It's easy for me to say, God, where's the good in that? And when I look at it from the horizontal perspective, I become anxious and worried. I lose my joy. In my peace, I face some self-doubt, lack of confidence. But when I look at it from the vertical perspective, I know God's got a plan in this. <laughs> Gary James taught a Sunday school lesson last week and this week on the fact that God's word is what is what it is true. It is true, folks. And as long as we keep our Focus here. They realize, you know, God's in control of this thing. God hadn't turned his back on North Point. God's not giving up on us. He's got something good for each family that's relocating and for this church that's going to be left behind. You better believe it. I'm going to believe it. Because I don't want to be an ally of Satan. I don't want to be a stumbling block to what God is doing. God has a purpose. And God has a plan. Some of you may be in the same place. Something going on in your life. Saying, you know, I just don't see it. I don't understand how, how God can keep his promise. That's what you're saying. I don't see how God can keep his promise that all things work together for good to those who love him. And you may be losing your joy and your peace because of it. I encourage you this morning to do what Peter needed to do. That is, get your mind in the right place. Not to set your mind on man's interests, but God's. Not to focus on the horizontal, but on the vertical. Because I guarantee you, as long as we keep our eyes here and focus on the vertical, the horizontal is going to take care of itself. God is going to make sure his plan unfolds for us.
You know, Colossians 3.2 says this. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. And that's our challenge, isn't it? Set our mind always on things above. It's unbelievers that focus here. That's all they know. One of the distinctive parts of being a Christian is we've got a different perspective. Focus on God. And that's what he calls us to do, isn't it? God calls us to two things. To trust and to obey. To believe and to do. And that's why we're going to close our service in just a minute by singing that, that old gospel hymn. And it says this, you know, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way while we do his good will, he abides with us still. And with all, with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Let's do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Uh, we believe it. We know it to be true. We trust in every detail of it this morning. We give our lives to it. And Father, may we never be like Peter. Become a stumbling block to your plan. So may we always be submissive to it and try to bring you glory through it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's-